Let's begin with prayer. God, who can live up to such standards? Every one of us falls so far short of what you designed us to be. You created us to be such beautiful, eloquent creatures who have dominion over this world and we have cast it aside for our own pleasures, our own pursuits. But we thank you that in Christ we are being made new. In Christ we are being fit for your use to be on mission, to proclaim the gospel of our King Jesus to the ends of the earth. Would you use Redemption City Church for that end? Would you call more elders, overseers, pastors to lead this church on that narrow path to the celestial city? God, this world is so full of darkness, so full of temptations and reasons to despair. Please equip your servants to guide these sheep to the heavenly fold. Amen. A young woman was in desperate need of a heart transplant. She laid in her hospital bed with only hours to live. Her life hanging in the balance, hanging by a thread. Barely kept alive by the beeping and pumping of a dozen machines singing farewell to her. However, three hours away, after a tragic car accident, an organ donor's heart was found to be the perfect match. The doctor moved quickly to remove the heart and package it carefully and ran down to the door of the hospital where two transports were waiting. He called them to himself, said, I need a transport. This needs to get to the transport, transplant center immediately. Somebody needs a heart to live, and I have what they need. And so one man calmly walked up to him and said, I'm the guy for you. I am the most qualified for the job. I have taken emergency medical transport training. Here are my credentials. I've watched some YouTube videos online of heart transplants, so I'm familiar with how important this is. I also just bought a brand new high-performance car that will safely and quickly get me there. But, I, you know, I did just eat in there, and there's crumbs all over, so I'm probably going to need to clean it up first because I don't want to contaminate your precious package. And just to be safe, because I'm going to have to go really fast, I'm going to spend some time tightening those lug nuts on the wheels. We don't want them to fall off. But you can be certain that when I do arrive... That everybody will know that because of my attentive preparation and meticulous care, I delivered that package with the utmost respect. While that first driver was talking, admiring the sound of his own voice, he didn't realize that a second driver, who had worked with his doctor many times before, quickly ran up, grabbed the package, and hopped into his 20-year-old Honda Civic with a few rust spots and 9-year-old campaign bumper stickers on the back, and he was on his way. Which of these men showed himself to be more qualified for the task? Today we're continuing our series of four sermons on the calling of an elder as we prepare our church to bring on more pastors, more elders, overseers to help us minister to this church. 
I preached two weeks ago on the role of a pastor as a shepherd who cares for Jesus' sheep under the authority of the great shepherd himself. And then last week, Jake reminded us that the greatest tool we have, the most important tool we have for shepherding the sheep is preaching and teaching, saturated in and centered on the gospel, Christ crucified and resurrected. And today we're going to focus on the character of a pastor, the quality, the qualifications of an elder. Who is this man that we're looking for to fill this role? What kind of man is this? And our text for today is the one that's most often referred to as the primary source for answering that question. And so you heard Connor read the list of qualifications. These are things that Paul gives to Timothy to say, Look for this kind of guy to help you lead this church in Ephesus. But I fear when we see lists in the Bible, we too quickly become Pharisees. It's so easy. We become legalists and we see lists like this as requirements or set of standards to achieve. So if I want to be an overseer, I better start cultivating these types of behaviors and developing them in my life. Or if we want to find an elder to raise up among us, we walk around with the list and hold it up next to him. Are you that guy? Are you that guy? But I want to encourage you today not to see this text as an exhaustive list of qualifications to be developed and tested, but indicators of the presence of Christ already at work in a man. Our main idea from this text is the life of an overseer points to Christ at work in him. These essential qualities that we're going to look at today are much deeper than a simple list of behaviors that we can look for. And we're going to look for those qualities, not just in this text, but throughout the letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And we're going to do it in three parts. First, we'll explore the appropriate desire of an overseer, starting in verse 1. What's the driving aspiration of Christ-like character in a pastoral candidate. Second, we'll examine the character of an overseer in verses 2 to 5. What kind of behaviors should we expect to see? And then finally, we'll dig deep into the heart of an overseer in verses 6 and 7. What are the things that drive all of those behaviors? Paul writes these letters to Timothy and to Titus to guys who are pastors, to show them this is what we're trying to accomplish in a church. And so he tells Timothy, I'm writing this so you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Or to Titus, he says, I left you there in Crete to put what remained into order. And when we hear that word order, our pharisaical hearts come out again and we start thinking, order, okay, that means carefully crafted policies and the appropriate organizational structures. But my goal is to show you that the order that Paul wants is properly ordered affections and priorities, hearts, intent, and lives skilled in making Christ known in our lives. So let's go back to the text and see how Paul is setting forth elders who display Christ at work in them. Starting with just verse 1, the desire of an overseer. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So the first quality we want to see in 
someone called to ministry is that he has a desire, a desire to do it. He wants to do this. You don't want a, a pastor who doesn't want to be a pastor. It just doesn't seem to make sense. But it's not as simple as saying that he wants a title or he wants the position. We need to ask what kind of want to he has. The title or the work itself. The type of desire that God wants for his church leaders, Paul has already been explaining in the first two chapters. And you can see that theme develop by tracing the word desire that, as Paul uses it already. So he first uses the word desire in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says that there's certain, certain men in the church who are desiring to be teachers of the law. They think they know the Scriptures way better than Paul. People ought to be listening to them instead of him. Don't listen to that guy. We're the ones who should be up front. We know better. And it's really them teaching different doctrines. Paul says to beware of them. And it really becomes evident that they're not really interested in caring for the people of God. They just want the position. They just want to build a reputation for themselves. They're like that organ transport driver who is so full of himself, listing off all the ways that he's qualified, but never actually gets the job done. They don't realize, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5, that the aim of our charge is love, affections and actions on behalf of others that benefit others in Christ. Contrast that, then, with the attitude mentioned in the next use of the word desire in chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This desire is drastically different from those experts in the law. Godly desires are primarily focused, intent on making the gospel of Jesus Christ known to the world. The Jews are thinking, no, this is our message. This is our Messiah. If you want to enjoy these benefits, you need to come and join our club. And Paul's pushing back saying, no, God wants to save people outside the Jewish club too. And so if you want to be a leader in the church, you had better have that same desire at work in your heart. You're not just interested in building up a group of like-minded people who will pat you on the back for your wonderful insights into the text. Oh, I'm so glad to finally be at a place where we have good Reformed theology. It must drive you to take that to other people. You have a desire to get out into the world and save whoever will listen to God's voice as you speak His Word. You're so passionate about making him known that you will make yourself uncomfortable because the desire to save others is greater than the desire to be in comfortable isolation. But the next mention of the word desire shows us how this is going to be accomplished. It would be natural to think that when you have this zeal to make Christ known that you just want to jump into ministry and go for it with without discernment, and you're overzealous. But there's a specific way in which God wants us to get this work done. Chapter 2, verse 8, just four verses later, he says, he desires that in every place men should pray. 
He's there beginning a section on cultivating an attitude of submission, of surrender, of humility, of utter dependence upon God to do the work. So counterintuitively, we are going to save the world through ordinary lives of loving service towards one another. And so when we get to this word desire in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that the primary qualification of an elder isn't a man who wants to make himself known, but has proven over and over again, he wants Christ to be known. He's a man who doesn't simply aspire to a title or an office, but the good work, the noble task of being used to save God's people. And so that's how we should approach these lists of do's and don'ts in verses 2 through 5. These are ways that you can look into a person's life and say, oh, that desire is definitely playing out. Christ is already at work in that man, so there's certainly going to be external indicators. So now I just want to quickly go through the list of a character of an overseer and see how they fit this desire, this mission of God. An overseer must be above reproach. That is, there's little doubt this man lives for God's work. He's the husband of one wife. The Greek word there means a one-woman man. He's so focused on his covenantal obligations that he is not swayed easily. He's sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. He's a guy who's got a level head on him. He's disciplined in his work. He's able to take care of his own life, manage his own life well enough that other people easily come to him for stability. He's hospitable. I think this is a word that often gets buried down in the list and we forget about. But the word there, hospitable, doesn't just mean being kind to someone, shaking a visitor's hand who walks into church Sunday morning, but someone who uses his house and invites strangers in in order that they would see the gospel on display in his home. An overseer must also be able to teach. Able to teach doesn't mean only that he knows his Bible well. He's got a good grasp of theology. But it means he shows this consistent skill in conveying truth so that others understand it and they respond appropriately. He's winsome in his teaching. It's understandable and repeatable, and many people can vouch for his influence in their life because they obey, understand and obey God's Word. And then these seven positive characteristics are followed by four prohibitions, which basically say the same thing from a negative perspective. He's self-controlled in his will, in his behavior, with his tongue and with his affections. His life isn't all about showing off his own strength and his own eloquence and his own riches. Everything he does, it seems like he's always pointing to the power of Christ and his word and his treasures in heaven. And then verses 4 and 5 are basically a case study. An overseer must manage his household well. Because that's where you're going to see all these things in action. How does he relate to his wife and his children? Does he lead them with clear control and a direction? Does he do it with both firmness and gentleness? 
Does he lead his wife in an understanding way, as Peter writes? Or does he discipline and instruct his children, as Paul commands the Ephesians in chapter 6? How he does these things in his home, towards his own family, are the most likely way he's going to do it towards you. But again, I want to remind you that this isn't just a list of requirements that that we're going to go look for in guys, but indicators that can give you assurance that Christ is at work in him already. It would be a mistake to read the list and just use it to hold one another accountable to. It's, the list isn't really about a man. That we're going to put these guys up front and you're going to see that man, that man, and that man. It's about Christ Himself in these men. These are things that Jesus exemplified in His own life. So this might become clearer if we go back through the list and make Jesus the subject of them. Go back to verse 2 and follow them. Jesus is above reproach. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Jesus is the husband of one wife. So Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Jesus is sober-minded. In the midst of His greatest trial, He said, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is self-controlled. When they picked up stones to throw at Him, He hid Himself and He walked away. He didn't fight back. He didn't like to get into arguments. He just walked away. Jesus is respectable. So much so that the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, found no fault in Him. Jesus is hospitable. He invites His enemies to become part of His family, not just as servants, but as beloved sons and daughters who get a table, a seat at the table of feasting. And he is able to teach. Jesus began his ministry with 12 uneducated men. And within a generation, his message spread to the known world. He is able to teach. This is the character of Christ. No elder, no pastor will ever live up to that standard in this world. We shouldn't have to debate the boundaries of every single one of these words as though we say, is he hospitable enough? Is he able to teach well enough? Does that divorce that he had in his life 10 years ago disqualify him because he's not the husband of one wife? Those are strange discussions to have when you see that this is about Christ himself and looking for him to be at work in, in one another. Always pointing to Christ's character and Christ's work. We're not just looking for certain behaviors. We're looking for overseers whose lives point to Christ as much as possible. So we ask, how do these behaviors get cultivated, developed in a man? Actually, these are all qualities that every one of you should be developing, right? If we all have the Holy Spirit and we're all becoming more like Christ, these should be what we are all working towards. But the overseer, pastor, elder is someone who has displayed it more fully and more broadly than typically expected of the average believer. But the reason isn't because he has tried harder 
or that he has disciplined himself really well to stay faithful and develop these characteristics. He is becoming like this because he has gone deeper into Christ and Christ has gone deeper into him. These characteristics flow out of a heart saturated in Christ. So let's look at verses 6 and 7 and see this heart of an overseer. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. These two verses simply appear like they're just two more qualifications. He must not be a recent convert, and he must not, or must be well thought of by outsiders. But these are just two more ways to highlight aspects of a heart that have been shaped by Christ. So the first part in verse 6, the overseer must not be a new convert, or he'll fall into the same fate as Satan. What was that? Think back to what happened to him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it. Everything He declared was very good. It was pleasing to Him, including... His highest angel, Satan, which I don't think he had that name at that time, but he was gorgeous, beautiful, radiant, and also a new creation. A brand new creation who didn't have much time to compare himself to the radiance of God. And he's looking around going, look at this place, it's spectacular, and oh my, I'm amazing too. I think I'm actually the most amazing thing here in this creation. So amazing that I'm probably the most important thing in existence. You can see how easy it is to become puffed up in yourself when you haven't had time to gaze upon the power and the beauty of God. So when you're a new believer, you think, the world makes so much sense now. It's so easy. Oh, Christ gave me new lenses You haven't had time to try to walk through this and see how much of a struggle it is. And it's easy for a pastor to fall into that too. Who can live up to this? Even with 10, 20, 30, 40 years of experience walking with Christ, it doesn't seem like you'll ever be good enough for this calling. It's so easy for a pastor to fall into this introspection, to stand up front and go, Man, I seem to understand the Bible better than anybody. I'm the one giving myself more to this. No elder can avoid falling into that temptation. So what's the solution? How can he be a faithful leader? Well, let's quickly jump back to verse 1. The solution to the problem of shaping and, and the shaping of a heart of a pastor comes into clarity when we focus on the trustworthy sayings of God. Notice the beginning of this verse. This saying is trustworthy. Paul uses that same phrase two other times in the letter to Timothy. And the first one is found in chapter 1, verse 15. These are the keys for shaping a pastor's heart. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, This saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And there Paul begins to explain and contrast the difference between these experts in the law, these guys who want to be teachers of the law, 
and the faithful pastor who looks to Christ. Paul himself was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, he says, a un- ignorant in unbelief. And he says Jesus judged him faithful. Are you kidding me? Paul himself doesn't live up to these qualifications to be an overseer. But he says Jesus judged him faithful because he received mercy which overflowed in him with faith and love. It overflowed so much that Jesus was using him to be an example of those who are being saved. That he would overflow with praise from his lips. He couldn't hold it back. He was so overjoyed with this mercy that he bursts out in praise saying, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. That's the heart of an overseer. You see in his behaviors, in his words, this constant marveling that God would ever use a guy like me, would ever save someone like me and have me stand up in front of you to save your souls. By every qualification, every single one of us in this room is disqualified for ministry. And yet, Christ lived the perfect life that Paul lays out here. And he died the wrath-bearing death that every one of us deserve, taking that condemnation. And he rose from the dead. And when he did that, he proclaimed, I am calling men to lead my church. He sets us apart, the overseers of this church apart for ministry by his blood in order that we would be examples and His praise would flow from our lips. I deserve the condemnation of the devil, and yet by His blood He calls me to proclaim His mercy, that He would live in me and overflow in faith and love. This is the justification which grounds the pastor's heart. That character that we read about in chapter 3, all those qualifications, they start with a heart that is constantly marveling at the mercy of God in Christ. But it's not just a backward look where we always look back to see what He accomplished. Then we need to turn forward and say, where are we going? What has He promised us in the future? And what is it that keeps us on the path? We go back to chapter 3, verse 7. And focus on the last half. He says, that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. How does the pastor not fall? I imagine my role as a pastor to be something like uh, Pilgrim's Progress, if you ever read that. It's just a wonderful explanation of the journey towards heaven and all of the temptations. But I don't see it as individually like Pilgrim was in the story. We're on this journey together. And I've been called to be a guide to make sure that you get to the destination. But the path is narrow and dangerous. There's temptations and steep ditches on both sides. There's obstacles and opponents in front of us. And it's the pastor's job to jump out front and clear the way for you. So it's easier for you to get there. 
And if someone falls off to the side, we dive down and grab you and pull you back up. Say, no, don't go there. Or someone gets weak and tired and afraid and they fall back. Say, I can't do it. I can't go there with you. And we say, hold up. Just wait. We're not taking one more step until we go get her and bring her along. It's a high calling for your pastors, for your overseers. But what is it that keeps us from falling into the ditch ourselves? First, we see that it's this constant reminder that we have been called. We have not earned this calling, but we have been given it by the blood of Christ. And then we look forward to the heavenly reward in the celestial city and we say, I want that and nothing will keep me from getting there and nothing will keep me from getting you there as well. This is what Jake was talking about in the newsletter article this last week. You're trying to get across campus to that building on the other side and the storm is raging. How easy it is to put your head down and just look at your feet and every step meanders all over. But if you want to get there quickly, you pick your head up and you take the the bullet-like snowflakes into your face and you walk a straight line. We see this truth the other time that Paul uses the saying is trustworthy in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, then following in verse 10, For this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, the Savior of all people. To avoid falling into disgrace, to avoid a snare of the devil, to faithfully toil and strive as your pastors, we must always keep our eyes up looking at the prize, the setting our hope on the living God, the living Christ, the Savior of all people. Yes, our justification was purchased on the cross, but He rose from the dead. He's alive and He ascended into heaven where He's preparing a place for us. And I desperately want to be there and I want to be there with you as well. And so I clear the path and say, come with me. We're justified by looking to the cross and we're sanctified and kept faithful by looking forward to the promises of God in Christ. He is our accountability partner. So don't just simply look at a list of rules to hold us accountable by, but look to Christ to work in us. I'll finish up with just two points of application. One for you and one for the current and future elders of this church. Remember my opening parable. Which of those drivers had shown himself to be more qualified for the work? The one who liked to talk about the qualifications or the one who actually had the desire and the ability and the heart to get it done? Clearly, it's the latter. Despite his clunky car that many people would like to point out, well, you're not being very safe and you're not being very careful. He wanted to do it. And he had a love for the doctor and for the patient to get that life-saving heart to her. And he had shown ability to do it before. And our goal then is to see this heart alive in our pastors. Brothers and sisters, As we look at these new elders and overseers, 
as you evaluate them and continue to evaluate us, Jake and me, remember that you're not just holding up a list trying to find disqualifying behaviors. You're not looking to see if we measure up because nobody measures up. What you're looking for is evidence that Christ is powerfully at work in this man in such a way that you can confidently and joyfully surrender to Christ at work through Him. You're looking for Christ to be able to give your life to Christ in us to say, care for my soul. I trust you will do it well because I see Christ in you. If you can identify the Spirit at work in us in a dozen ways, then in that one time where you're like, oh, I'm really struggling here today to see Jesus at work in Him. But I see it happening all over there. And you can say, Jesus, I trust you to work this out for my good. I trust you to work in Him for my good. Paul's giving us lenses here. So we can see Christ at work in your pastors. So when your natural lenses aren't working well, you can say, the Spirit will do its work in good time. Finally, for those of you who may one day be elders of this church, look to Christ. Just look to Christ. Submit your desires to Him and say, make me like you. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart, says Psalm 37.4. He will give you the appropriate desires when you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Don't see this thing as a this list as a list of things to achieve, but things that will be evident when your heart is shaped to be like Him. Send your heart deep into Christ. You're not going to get the heart by doing the list. But you'll do the list by get, having the heart. Be confident in your past calling by the finished justifying work of Christ on the cross and then overflow with praise in, a, in His abundant mercy and be sh- assured of your success in ministry, your well-done, good and faithful servant by keeping your eyes on Christ. What you desire is a noble task, a good work. Literally, in verse 1, noble task means a good work. Along the way, you're going to run into obstacles. You're going to fight opponents. You're going to break your body, diving out of the way of the snares of the devil. But it is your joy to do it. Because it is your calling to walk this path of sanctification with eyes set on the hope of the living God. Let's pray. God, who can do this? What a responsibility that we would call people to lead a church, to face the fiery darts of Satan, to have to dive out of the way of the snares of the devil, to face opponents on behalf of the church when we are one of the sheep as well. God, but we trust that Your Spirit is at work in us. We're not submitting ourselves just to men. We're submitting ourselves to Christ in these men and we know Your Spirit will do His good work. Help us to trust You 
and your great plans, that you will receive glory and you will use this church to save this world from sin and corruption because Jesus guaranteed it in his death and resurrection by his power and in his name and authority, we pray. Amen.